Welcome to Acquisition Talk, a podcast on the management, technology, and the political economy of weapon systems acquisition. I'm your host, Eric Lofgren. You can find this podcast and more information, including links, commentary, and articles on acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks for listening. With me in the studio today is Rick Whittle, who spent 22 years as a Pentagon correspondent for the Dallas Morning News. And since then, he has written two books on weapon system programs. In 2014, he published Predator, The Secret Origins of the Drone Revolution, a book that I highly recommend. But we are here today to talk about his first book, The Dream Machine, the untold story of the notorious V-22 Osprey. Rick, thanks for being on Acquisition Talk. Thanks for inviting me. So not all of our uh, listeners might be familiar with the V-22 Osprey and the tilt rotor concept. Can you describe what requirements it fills, and how is it different than, say, a helicopter or a fixed-wing aircraft? Yeah, well, it's a, uh, some people call it a hybrid of a helicopter and a fixed-wing aircraft. I call it a real-life transformer because it has two huge wingtip rotors, and it tilts them up to take off and land like a helicopter and forward to fly like an airplane. So it transforms itself from a vertical takeoff and landing, or VTOL, aircraft into an airplane that can fly fast and get lift from wings instead of simply from its rotors. That capability gives the Osprey about twice the speed and as much as five times the range of ordinary military helicopters. That's a tremendous capability and it it is um, over the past I guess 11 years now since the Osprey became operational. It's led to the, the Marines to rethink some of the things they do because the Osprey's capabilities are different from helicopters. And it's also raised the question of whether they don't need other kinds of aircraft uh, that can keep pace with the Osprey to serve as escorts for it. Yeah, you gave an excellent story in there uh, in 1980 when President Jimmy Carter was trying to uh, rescue the U.S. embassy hostages in Iran. And the range to go get the helicopters over there to make the rescue mission was out of range of the helicopter, essentially. And so they had to stage in the desert a couple hundred miles south of uh, Tehran, and they had to do a rendezvous to get extra fuel so they could make the range. And, you know, that created the real requirement that everyone saw, hey, we need an aircraft that can land like a helicopter, but have the range and more of a speed of a fixed wing aircraft. And that had a nice confluence of the technical side where the tilt rotor was really, the demonstrator was really kind of starting to come within its time around 1980 as well. But the whole tilt rotor had been going on for quite a long time. And you described how Bell Helicopter, which was kind of one of the forerunners of designing the uh, tilt rotor, the contractor was marketing the weapon system to the government. And you said that that process took a long time and you called it a courtship. Can you describe, why does it take so long for, uh, for companies to kind of get these technologies through the government. And why is it a courtship? Well, I'll talk about that. But just to sort of fill in a couple of blanks in, in the history that you were giving there, the Bell had actually started working on the tilt rotor concept in the, in the 50s. And there were a lot of concepts in the 50s for vertical takeoff and landing aircraft. It became, uh, actually, you can go on the Internet and find something called the Wheel of Misfortune, 
that shows all the different methods that were tried. And the tilt rotor was just one of many that were tried to combine vertical takeoff and landing with the speed of, of a fixed-wing aircraft. So they had done the XV-3 convertiplane, as it was called, and then they built the XV-15 tilt rotor demonstrator for NASA and the Army, interestingly. And uh, those events you talked about in 1980, Operation Eagle Claw, the attempt to rescue the hostages, and the XV-15 appearing at the Paris Air Show came together to create huge momentum for the tilt rotor, which led to the V-22 program. Now, to go back to your question of, you know, basically the question is how do defense contractors sell their products to the military? And I call it a courtship because they actually don't sell in the conventional way that a salesman will try to sell you a car at a car lot. And they don't build their products the way car companies do. They don't build aircraft on speculation generally. Once in a while, there will be a program that's partly or, or even significantly done on company money. But in general, they try to find out what it is the military services want, and they offer the military services capabilities that their engineers have come up with that they think could be useful. And then they have people, and they don't like the term marketers, they call them business development directors, usually. Often uh, retired military officers who sort of try to bridge the gap between the engineers who know what's possible technically or, or have ideas for things that could be possible technically, but maybe don't fully understand military needs and operations. Uh, in fact, quite often don't. <laughs> and the business development people try to be the liaison between those people and the military. So the, the engineers will, say, do a pre-design study of an aircraft like a tilt rotor, and, and this happened. And then the business development people will go and sort of take it on the road and show it to military officers, they, you know, often, sometimes people they served with, people who are in key positions in the Pentagon, people who are out in, in bases or on aircraft carriers or whatever. And they'll show them the ideas. Uh, they'll do the, these elaborate briefings of you know, how this concept might be used. They'll show these briefings, and they'll very carefully note what the reactions are. You know, I mean, they might brief something to an Army general or even an Army colonel or major, and that person might say, well, you know, the thing is it needs to fly this speed or it needs to carry this much weight or it needs to have this many troops or I don't like the doors on the sides. Um, you know, we like to do things this way. And then they'll take that information back to the designers and say, this is what they say. Can you do that? And, and so this can last for years, and it lasted years in the case of the tilt rotor. Bell was marketing the concept basically – to the military for many years, and it was that Operation Eagle Claw was a key event because that allowed one of Bell's business development people, who I who I tell a lot of this story through his work, uh, Dick Spivey, it allowed him to put together a briefing on how that operation might have succeeded had the military had tilt rotors. And that same year, a young, dynamic the youngest ever Secretary of the Navy, John Lehman, who was 38 when he was sworn in and was a very powerful figure, came into office. They used to call him Young Winston because he was such a domineering kind of force. 
and uh, a, a true intellectual, and also a Naval Reserve helicopter pilot. He saw this XV-15 tilt rotor demonstrator at the 1980 Paris Air Show and was absolutely smitten with the idea uh, that this could be the next transport aircraft uh, for the Marine Corps. At the time, as you know, the, the Marine Corps' CH-46 Sea Knight helicopters were getting kind of long in the tooth, and uh, the Marines had been working for several years trying to figure out what to replace it with. And so those events came together. And anyway, the actual creation of the program called JVX that became the V-22 occurred as a result of this long courtship, I call it almost a seduction, that goes on between the contractors and the military, or in some cases, NASA. And historical events that affected the military's thinking in a big way. I mean, the tilt road was far from the only thing that change that was generated by Operation Eagle Claw, the failure in Desert One. And then the politics and personalities who are always important in the fate of a program like this. So this is something that I had sort of been vaguely aware of as I covered the Pentagon for 22 years. But when I wrote this book a long time ago now, I, I really got into understanding how this works. And it's, uh, it's, it's really quite an intricate choreography. Yeah, there are a lot of great stories throughout the book that discuss all the roles of industry, the Pentagon, the services, and Congress itself. So I really appreciated that you kind of brought out the military, industrial, and congressional complex kind of throughout this book and kind of like the very personal relationships that were involved. And you mentioned it earlier that Dick Spivey at Bell Helicopter, he was one of these marketers or sales engineers or business developers, but he had actually been right uh, an engineer before that yes he was a uh, he was an actual aeronautical engineer who uh, went to school at Georgia Tech and had worked at Bell from the time he was a college student. yeah and he developed a relationship with a navy action officer by the name of Robert Magnus so can you describe the roles in this story how did they kind of work together uh, well, to advance the V22 program well, well Robert Magnus or Bob Magnus was uh, he was a marine corps action officer of course working technically within the Department of the Navy as the Marine Corps, which the Marine Corps is part of. An action officer, you know, I think many people are not familiar with that term who aren't sort of Washington insiders or even Pentagon insiders, but an action officer is, uh, is a, usually a fairly young officer who comes, who gets assigned to the Pentagon to an office like in Magnus's case, Marine Aviation Programs Office. And their job is to gather information, write reports, brief uh, higher-ups. They spend a lot of their time trying to put together information that can let senior leaders make decisions about, um, in this case, what kind of aircraft to buy. And Dick Spivey came to the Pentagon at some point, I think, or actually they were in something called the Navy Annex at the time, which was up on the hill overlooking the Pentagon. That's where the Marine Corps' uh, action officers were. Anyway, Dick Spivey met Bob Magnus, uh, who was a major at the time. And I don't remember the year off the top of my head, but it's probably around that 1980 time period. And Magnus also became enamored with the idea of the tilt rotor. I mean, one of the things that I want to just interject here, as a newspaper reporter, I had found 
covering the Osprey was kind of like covering the abortion issue. It was there were there were you know true believers on both sides, and uh, there were people who loved the Osprey and the tilt rotor concept, and there were people who absolutely hated it and thought it was a death machine, or for their own selfish reasons, like selling helicopters, <laughs> wanted to see the program die. But it was really almost an article of faith, and people fell passionately in love with the idea. And Spivey and Magnus were two of those people. And so they worked together in a very legitimate way, the way a government official and a defense contractor representative, you know, talk and come up with ideas and give each other suggestions about how to accomplish uh, their mutual goal, which in this case was getting the tilt rotor built, getting the Marine Corps a tilt rotor. Magnus, by the way, went on to become assistant commandant of the Marine Corps and a four-star general. Uh, He's now retired. But yeah, those kinds of personal relationships can be very important, not only between business development people and people like action officers in the Pentagon, of course, but between executives and uh, senior leaders in the military, and especially between business development people and congressional staff and executives and members of Congress. That's usually how the the things uh, shake out. And also between the defense contractors and the people who are ultimately overseeing their programs, such as in this case, the Naval Air Systems Command. So personal relationships are extremely important in defense contracting. Despite the sort of the, the dryness and the technicality of the subject sometimes and the sort of bramble of regulations <laughs> that are sometimes hard to read. There's really a lot of personality and politics involved in how our defense contracting system works. And I think that that's probably true in other countries as well. I don't know their systems, but I think that it's also a reflection of the fact that we are a democracy and our members of Congress get involved in what the Defense Department decides to do, what the services decide to do. So yeah, we'll definitely circle back to uh, congressional involvement in the V-22 program. But for now, let's kind of set up how the program was getting into development. So you called it, there was a number of zany designs of the tilt rotor over a number of years. Well, no, no, not of the tilt rotor, but of VTOL aircraft, vertical takeoff and landing aircraft. I see. So this wheel of misfortune that I talked about, if you if you look that up on the internet, you'll find, well, there were a couple of uh, aircraft that were called the Pogos. They were, they were tail sitters, and the idea was they would take off sitting on their tail. They were fighter planes. They would take off sitting on their tail with the pilot, you know, sitting with his back to the ground. And his and his eyes looking straight up and and uh, actually I I can't remember the details but I think one of them flew a couple times and transitioned from vertical takeoff to level flight and made a landing or two but you know the problem was the pilot had to sort of turn around and look down at the ground while landing and try to basically like when you're parallel parking and it, and it wasn't very practical it was. Uh, and there were other problems with that idea, too, especially when the, when the idea was to, to use it on ships where the wind is a big factor. But anyway, uh, so there were those, those were the kind of zany designs that I, I was talking about. I see. About. But the tilt rotor concept, it had been funded by a number 
of different uh, agencies. NASA was in it. Army was a, was an early funder as well before the Marine Corps and the Navy really stepped in. So Bell Helicopter, they created that XV-15 demonstrator, and that was rolled out at the Paris Air Show in 1981, like you said, where the Secretary of the Navy at the time, as you said, John Lehman, he was there. He was very taken by the technology. And in order to kind of get the program through Congress, through the acquisition progress, and, and really kind of like establish it as a program of record, uh, they kind of wanted to make it more viable through a joint program, multi-service. What became the V-22 program got all four services involved, and each of the services had their own different unique set of requirements that had to make it onto the platform. So you said the XV-15, the prototype demonstrator, was really just kind of like a tinker toy relative to the platform that the military was requesting through the requirements. Well, that, that was actually Bob Magnus's uh, phrase. He, he said that compared to the V-22, which became a very complex and large aircraft with a lot of different design compromises made to suit the needs, primarily the Marine Corps, but that was Magnus's phrase. He called uh, the XV-15 a tinker toy because the XV-15, you know, it was a very sort of minimal, minimalist aircraft. I mean, I, I don't remember its exact dimensions, but I think that from the tip of its nose to the tip of its tail is probably not much longer than the diameter of one V-22 rotor. It sort of flit around almost like a mosquito, uh, you know, I mean, and these test pilots from Bell flew a demonstration at the Paris Air Show, in which this little aircraft just sort of danced around, bowed to the crowd, performed a, an aerial ballet. And that was used not just at the Paris Air Show, but many times to demonstrate the tilt rotor technology to people. Well, when they got to designing the V-22, and Lehman probably rightly believed that the Marine Corps wasn't going to be able to afford to do this on its own, and there would be opposition from other parts of the military unless everybody was involved. And so he set out to create this joint program in which all four of the uh, armed services uh, under the Defense Department would buy tilt rotors. And this led to a whole raft of requirements because the, the Osprey was supposed to do 10 missions for these four armed services. And I brought a list with me. It was supposed to do amphibious assaults and other transport missions, the CH-46 that the Marines flew, or their CH-53D flew. And for the Air Force, it was supposed to do special operations. For the Air Force and Navy, it was supposed to do combat search and rescue. And the Army, which didn't end up buying any V-22s, was a major player early on. And for them, they wanted the V-22 to do troop transport, medical evacuation, and this wild electronic spying mission that's, that whose requirements said that the aircraft would have to cruise at 30,000 feet, that's well above where you need oxygen, but evade surface-to-air missiles by diving toward the Earth at a descent rate of 20,000 feet per minute or more, that's roughly 230 miles an hour, and do a split-ass maneuver and then dispense chaff and flares as it was coming down and then fly nap of the Earth, meaning treetop level. And this was an aircraft that's supposed to have rotors on its wings that are going to move. And the 
aerodynamic forces that would be involved in that maneuver for that aircraft, I think, are I mean, I'm, I'm not an engineer, and I can't explain them all, but I can just imagine <laughs> that uh, it would be a nightmare to try to design something like that. And if it worked, it would be a real dream machine. Right? So, oh, and it was, it was supposed to carry guns and air-to-air missiles, and it was supposed to have external hard points for fuel tanks and electronic countermeasures. It was supposed to be pressurized against nuclear, biological, and chemical weapons or contamination. It was supposed to fly 2,100 nautical miles on one tank of gas. And it was also supposed to use what at the time was a, a sort of a new technology that's now used pretty frequently called fly-by-wire. So computerized flight controls rather than cranks and pulleys. And then it also, and everything in it, had to be either triply redundant. In other words, if one system went out, you still had two more that would do the same thing. And it had to be able to take a hit from a 14.5-millimeter shell and still keep working. And these are just basic requirements that this committee of, from the four services put together. One reason that I personally think that joint programs don't usually work very well. But beyond that, the basic design required the Marines wanted to carry 18 troops and uh, fly from amphibious assault ships that had limited deck space. And so when they got to designing the aircraft, they had to, I think it's a distance of 12 feet clearance they wanted between the island on the ship and the V-22's closest rotor. And then the outboard landing gear wheel would have to be so many feet from the edge of the uh, amphibious assault ship so the plane didn't fall into the water. And that meant that the rotors had to be smaller than they should have been for the size of the aircraft. And this created a, a phenomenon that's gotten a lot of criticism over the years, a very uh, heavy downwash, and literally hurricane force downwash in some instances. Because the rotors are smaller than they should be, a larger rotor creates less downwash. These things were so distressing to the chief tilt-rotor engineer at Bell Helicopter, a guy named Ken Wernicke, that when he saw the requirements, he threatened to resign. And he, he went to his boss and he said that they're going to destroy – he was a tilt-rotor true, tilt true believer – and Wernicke said they're going to destroy the tilt-rotor idea. They're going to discredit it forever with this. And they nearly did. Yeah, that was a really powerful part of the book for me at least, where, you know, the chief engineer, the true believer, the guy who's really going to try to make this thing technically work, he looks at his baby project and he thinks it's been corrupted and he doesn't even really want to have so much more to do with it because he thinks it's not going to be viable anymore. Right. Yeah, you showed a pretty interesting picture of what they thought the V-22 was going to look like. Wernicke's standing there with a model and you can see the nacelles on, on that aircraft. They were just very much smaller. They, it, was, it was a very different looking plane, right? Much sleeker. And also, by the way, if you remember, it says on it, Army. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you, you showed there in the book that the XV-15 demonstrator in 1981, that was about 10,000 pounds with a couple thousand pounds of fuel and test equipment on it. And then the V-22, what the requirements had it at was, well, no more than 31,000 pounds empty weight. And it really kind of, after that first development cycle, kind of came in closer to 39. In the Department of Defense, we like to think of weight 
being related to capabilities. And so there you're really seeing a three or four times increase in the weight. And, and that's kind of reflective of all of the, the requirements that were put on this brand new technology, really. Well, and that's probably empty weight because I think the actual uh, takeoff weights uh, that they use today are, are quite a bit heavier than that in the 40,000, 50,000 pound range. Right. That, that is true. That's, uh, I was quoting the, uh, the empty weight there. Right. Yeah, you, you said that it was getting up towards the 45,000 yeah. pounds for the gross weight. So when the V-22 became an official program and they started looking for contractors to source it, Bell Helicopter was the one who created the demonstrator. They had the technology. But they decided to do a 50-50 partnership with Boeing as their teammate on the program. Can you describe why did they team together and what was the effect on the management from that? Well, this was another, basically a decision by John Lehman. I mean, um, he didn't officially force Bell and Boeing to team together, but you know, a lot of things happen through implied statements and things. He wanted Boeing involved because Boeing could have been a major source of opposition to the V-22. Boeing had been working on a design for a mostly composite helicopter to replace the CH-46 that uh, the, the nickname was the Plastic Frog. And they really expected to get the contract themselves to do the CH-46 replacement. And then along here, here comes the tilt rotor, and here comes Lehman saying, you know, Lehman just directly after the Paris Air Show told the Commandant of the Marine Corps, PX Kelly, you need to buy a tilt rotor. And Kelly told me that's the that was the decision, you know. He says that, and I salute, and we go do it. But Lehman knew, he, he was very shrewd politically, and he knew that the uh, V-22, not only could the Marines not get this program to become a reality on their own, but Bell, which was a pretty small company by compare, any company is <laughs> these days small by comparison with Boeing, but even then, Bell was very small and very limited in its development capacity compared to Boeing. And so there was that argument that, you know, they needed help. But there was also the idea that you could sort of give Boeing a reason to make the V-22 work instead of resisting it. And so he basically brought the presidents of the two companies together and suggested that, you know, they should do this together, and they did. I think of most of the people involved, many of the people involved, I, I haven't had a chance to ask John Lehman this personally, uh, how he feels about this in retrospect, but many of the people involved felt that... Uh, the big mistake there was making it a 50-50 partnership because over the next years, as the program got more complicated, nobody had the deciding vote. And so when big decisions came along, they could simply be at loggerheads for long periods of time. And then they had very vicious arguments about who would have to pay for certain things and whose fault certain delays were and so on. And so, uh, in fact, one guy told me that these meetings, they would yell and scream and pound the table so much, especially after they went into cost overruns on their development contract. He said, you know, somebody suggested maybe we could pay for the cost overruns by selling tickets to the meetings. <laughs> so I think it's a lesson that hasn't been learned, I don't think, because I think, I, I can't remember off the top of my head, 
which program it is, but there have been some 50-50 teaming put together in recent years. And uh, at least in the V-22's case, it didn't work well. Now, ultimately they came to accommodation when the program you know, became operational and when they finally solved the terrible growing pains that they started with. It's not even growing pains isn't strong enough, the, the, the terrible problems and crashes that they had. And when they finally got all that behind them and the design began to solidify, then the companies began to cooperate. And as far as I know, it works pretty well today. But back in those days, in the 80s, it was a very tendentious relationship. Yeah, you gave some really colorful stories in there about the culture clash that was really going on. You had Bell Helicopter from Texas. They moved a little bit slower. They're a little bit more individualistic. They didn't have all these processes and controls. And so you're saying assemblers might be doing something a little bit different than each other. Whereas in Boeing, where you have this big organized company, they were kind of saying process over people was their culture. And and then you kind of brought out a lot of how those cultures clashed in the book really well. And I thought that was a very interesting kind of sociological insight into how these companies kind of work together um, and and get these massive programs done. Yeah, well, that is probably always going to be, not necessarily in a partnership, but there are big differences in the cultures of different companies, defense contractors. And these days, a lot of the big companies like Boeing have bought smaller companies and tried to sort of keep them more or less at arm's length to let them preserve their culture of doing things in innovative, creative ways rather than imposing their bureaucracy on them. I mean, this is uh, because, of course, in the last, I don't know, dozen years or more, there's no hotter buzzword than innovation, right? So everybody wants it. Some people know how to do it, some don't. But in the case of Bell and Boeing, Bell was a more laid-back kind of place and a place where there was, I think I used the term uh, artisan, culture. And this proved to be a problem, they found out later, with the nacelles, because uh, among the things that had been done was that some technicians would lay out the wire bundles that went into the nacelles differently than other technicians did. And if you did it in certain ways, the fact that the nacelles were moving would scrape those wire bundles, and and they had had a number of fires in the nacelles that that were started by that problem. That was one of the problems uh, that that the ultimate the Blue Ribbon Commission found when they started examining the problems that developed in the program. So, yes, big places have more bureaucracy and and uh, often value process over people. I think it's a function of size, largely, as well as philosophy. And smaller places are more agile and more uh, open to creative ideas and less rigid in, in process usually. And that was a big difference between the companies. Yeah, I think it's uh, Cisco Systems that will actually create a small team in-house and then just take them completely out of the company and just like kind of put them out on their own only to reintegrate at some time later after kind of you know, the freewheeling innovation has been done and then they can bring it back 
scale it and, and kind of do some more process control around it. Yeah, that's interesting. And I um, think a lot of companies are trying to figure this out because what they don't want is to have their business undermined by disruptive innovation from outside. They're trying to figure out how to bring the disruptive innovation inside. Yeah. And that's the Clayton Christensen book, uh, The Innovator's Dilemma. I think that lays out the sustaining versus the disruptive innovation quite well. So moving along here, in 1986, the program was ready to go into what they call full-scale development where they're really going to make an operational system that is intended for production and not just a prototype demonstrator like they did in 1980 and 81. So the full-scale development contract was awarded to, again, Bell and Boeing, and Navy Secretary John Lehman wanted it to be a fixed-price contract. And he said, well, one of the benefits of a fixed-price contract, even though it's development and because it's fixed-price and the uncertainties in development might create a great amount of risk where you can take a great deal of loss, but it also allows the contractor to, quote, police the government. So they're not doing all these requirement changes that create those costly changes um, to the price. So can you talk a little bit about fixed price development contracts and what kind of happened there? Yeah, well, that was that was an idea that Lehman had that according to those who lived under the decision, uh, did not work. It was not one of his good ideas. You know, normally, companies do development work on what's called a cost-plus-incentive-fee contract. So they, they get reimbursed for their costs, and they, and they get a fee on top of what they've done. It usually limits them, to I think, to a profit of roughly 8% or something like that. And so you know, investors aren't all that excited about these development contracts. But that's when they're basically figuring out how to manufacture aircraft that they have designed or systems that they have designed. And they run into problems. They they find out that things don't work the way they anticipated they would. And so they take longer to do it, and it costs more to come up with the final design than they anticipated. So Lehman's idea was that, uh, well, you know, a lot of the changes in designs are mandated from the customer, the Naval Air Systems Command, you know, the the bureaucrats uh, within the defense acquisition system. Design changes have been a problem in defense acquisition for a long time, widely recognized. And so his idea was that um, Bell and Boeing, if the Naval Air Systems Command came to them and said, well, we want to change this. Uh, you, ne- you need to do this differently. And if Bell and Boeing could say, uh, no, sorry, can't do that, fixed price, we can't, that'll cost too much money, we'll, it'll put us over our contract, we can't do it. But that's not the way the world works in defense acquisition. The contractors don't tell the defense acquisition customer, in this case, Navair, oh, sorry, you're wrong. They, they regard them as the boss. And they may debate them over things, and of course do all the time, and argue with them, but they don't tell them, no, we're not doing that, generally. I think John Lehman didn't fully appreciate the personal dynamic that goes on between the contractors and the customer. And I had some examples in the book of of, um, arguments that ensued so they ended up overrunning their 
development contract by a substantial amount. I mean, usually you do a fixed price contract uh, for manufacturing when you've done full-scale development, or what's, now it's called engineering manufacturing development, EMD, where you, you actually build the tools you're going to use to make the product, and you, you've essentially finalized the design except for changes that come along as the system goes into use and the users figure out that they want something slightly different. But fixed price generally doesn't work well for development. It's sort of inconsistent with the idea, and it certainly didn't work well in the V22 program. So to give the listener a little bit more context, the V-22 program at the time, JVX, became a program of record in the Department of Defense in 1983. And then, as we were just discussing, in 1986, it went into full-scale development. Two of those units that came out of that development work actually crashed, which in 1992 led to a new development work. It was called the EMD, the Engineering and Manufacturing Development. And you said there was 80% new design work on that V-22 model, and it became called the B model because it was so different. So that was the second round of development. And then in 2000, there was another pair of crashes, which segued into a third development cycle starting in 2002, which ultimately led to the initial operational capabilities of the aircraft in 2007. So what do you think this says about the systems research and development cycle as kind of like a nonlinear process of trial and error. And does this view kind of conflict with the steady milestone approach where you kind of go from prototyping to full-scale development to production kind of all in one go? Well, a lot of that very sad development history of the Osprey occurred for political reasons. I mean, Dick Cheney became Secretary of Defense and... uh, 1989, and he needed to cut $10 billion from the defense budget. He he came up with a list of programs that he was going to cancel based on the advice of the uh, director of program analysis and evaluation, David Chu. And uh, Chu and his staff had never thought that the V-22 was worth the investment that the tilt rotor would cost. They saw the helicopters as a cheaper alternative. So then the V-22 was frozen for a while, and and it had uh, actually shut down development of one of those aircraft, by the way, the first one that crashed, crashed because of the shutdown. And this is a strange story, but it's instructive and something that I think defense contractors ought to think about. A technician had wired the controls for the aircraft but had failed to file paperwork showing that the work had been done. The wires had come from the factory crossed and they had to be put back in their proper uh, connections. But the work stopped for some months because of the cuts in the Osprey budget. And when they came back to finish the aircraft, there was this open order to switch the wiring. And he did, and, and, and they did, I don't know who did, And as a result, when the test pilots took that aircraft out to fly it, the controls were improperly wired, and that made it impossible to control the aircraft. And so it resulted in in a video that's very popular among Osprey critics 
that you can find on the internet in which it's sort of wobbling around the runway like a lame duck and then goes down on its nose. But that happened because of this error in manufacturing that was the result of a political decision and a, a, a paperwork error. So that's, I mean, that's not, that doesn't answer your question, but the development history of the Osprey has its own strange quirks. And the Cheney era is one of them. So in an ideal world, you would start a program and let it mature as you want your children to mature in school, you know, first grade, second grade, third grade. But it often doesn't work that way in the real world because of political forces, budget cuts, you know, we went through this period of sequestration a few years back uh, that had terrible effects on, on many defense contractors. But I think that the old system of milestone by milestone, which still exists in framework, has proven incapable of keeping up with the pace of technological development. And that was recognized many years ago. And in 2001, the Defense Department started attempting what's called spiral development or evolutionary acquisition and spiral development with the idea that to respond to changes in technology more quickly, you might start to build an aircraft or a system, but you build a limited number and then you have a new improved design for the next block. And that was that was done with Global Hawk and it's been done with many programs since. And that's one way to try to get past that long, slow continuum of development that in the modern times has proven inadequate for technological pace. The other way is the way you mentioned uh, the Predator early on. And the Predator was the first uh, use of what was called at the time advanced concept technology demonstrations with the idea that Rather than doing things the way they had been done and normally were done where the Defense Department would go tell companies, we want a new aircraft or we want a new system to do this, send out a request for proposals, the companies come in with proposals, the Pentagon weighs them for months, then they award one or two or three contracts for people to develop their designs uh, or to do further study, and then they pick a winner and then they go through all these stages of development. The idea there was, just, just do it more like the car companies do, right? So Ford builds their latest Focus and puts it on the market, and people buy it or they don't. And then they make decisions about how they want to change it next year. So in an advanced concept technology demonstration, the idea was a company could offer the or, or could meet minimal requirements, give the military a technology, they could take it out for a test drive, see if they liked it, see what they didn't like about it, or if they didn't like it, just cancel it. You haven't spent much money, you haven't wasted a lot of time. And that's evolved into something called joint capability technology demonstrations. And those are, I think, have proven to be a useful way to get around the long, tedious process that the defense acquisition system is known for. Of course, you know, the problem is there have to be gates and checks and balances all through the system because 
it's such a um, as history has shown over and over again it's it's such a a ripe area for corruption that there have to be a lot of rules and regulations and inspections and all these things that add to the cost and the time that it takes to do things so i don't know lots of people smarter than i have worked on defense acquisition reform for many years and we we still don't have a system that people think is ideal. So I have no prescriptions on that, but those are just a couple of observations. This is a story that I think we see kind of over and over again in the department where they say, hey, I see an idea I like, and I want to kind of leapfrog it to the end state solution through kind of one development contract, right? And then large economies of scale and production. So I like to put more missions onto the same platform. But then if the program doesn't go according to schedule, right? You were planning on phasing out the legacy system. Now you have a gap. So that's kind of what happened with the V-22. It was supposed to replace the CH-46 force. And by the time of the early 1990s, when it was scheduled to start entering the force and replacing the CH-46, the V-22 wasn't ready. Now they had to do a kind of crash course on new acquisitions to kind of fill that, that capability gap. Well, and the CH-46 kept flying many, many years uh, after the Marine Corps wanted to retire it. I'm going to read a nice quote from you that summarizes some of the V-22 problems, and I'm going to follow that up with a question. So you write, there were a lot of reasons that things had gone so wrong over the years. The overly ambitious requirements of the original program, the company's blithe assurances on schedule and lowballing of bids, the attempt to cram so many new technologies into a new type of aircraft, the 50-50 Bell-Boeing partnership and their culture clash, the design compromises dictated by the needs to fly from an amphibious assault ship, former Navy Secretary John Lehman's insistence on a fixed-price development contract, funding shortfalls during the Cheney attempt to cancel the Osprey, the push by the Marines to get the Osprey into service as fast as possible, everyone had his list, and there was plenty of blame to go around. Most agreed, though, that the biggest mistake had been allowing time, schedules, to drive the program. So can you describe why schedule was such a problem for the V-22 program? Well, um, as I listen to you (laughs) read that paragraph, I think it kind of answers the question itself. But if I had to sum it up, I would say, you know, there was a political imperative This program was under attack from early on, and the political imperative, the Marines wanted to save it, and the Marines worked hand in glove, as I I write in the book with uh, their congressional supporters on this, to basically defy Dick Cheney and keep the program alive. But they felt that it was imperative for them to get the Osprey into service as fast as possible because the longer it took, the stronger the argument against it would seem. It's taking too long. We've spent too much. There are quicker, cheaper solutions. And, you know, by the natural course of things, your congressional allies don't always stay there forever. So the Marines, when they got to testing the Osprey, they waived some of the test requirements. I mean, for example, they, they, they banned their pilots from doing air combat maneuvers during operational evaluation. And so I think it's a, I mean, it's a very complicated question, and, and that's why I hope people will read the book. But essentially, trying to do things in flight before you 
are absolutely sure that you're ready to do them is one thing. And that's one of the things that um, I think most aircraft companies try their very best to avoid doing these days. These days it's actually much easier because of the advances in technology and simulation, computer technology. It's, I think it's uh, gotten easier to determine when it actually is safe to fly. But you got to remember, this is 1980s technology, but it's still revolutionary today. I mean, making the transition between vertical flight and horizontal flight is a very tricky thing that the V-22 does through its flight control computer. But it's, uh, it's not an easy aerodynamic problem. And there were things that they learned, for instance, and, and kept learning after it became operational about the implications or the, the effects of having the rotors side by side instead of front and back the way a CH-47 helicopter has them. It creates very different aerodynamic issues, uh, one of which was blamed for that horrible crash in uh, Marana, Arizona in uh, April of 2000 that killed 19 Marines. So... The V-22, in order for it to basically get approved by the Department of Defense, it had to make commitments to schedule. When would I pass through the certain milestones? When would I have my first flight and operational test and the like? And as delays kind of occurred, you saw them, well, we're going to cut out either due to funding shortfalls or just time, cut out some of the program testing. And we're also going to, you know, get production tooling on order early, even though we're not fully done with the design. And that's what we kind of call as concurrency when you start your production tooling and getting the production line ready before you're really done with development. So it seems like this concurrency and skimping on operational testing had kind of plagued the V-22 because of this schedule problem. And you said, well, there's a difference between schedule-driven programs and event-driven programs where the schedule says, well, I'm going to go into production in 1991 or whatever the year is. And so that's when I got it, have all the work done and be ready, as opposed to I will go into production when I pass these specific events of operational evaluation. Is it operationally suitable and all of that? Did you care to comment on just how did concurrency kind of play out in this case? And why is that a, a, a problem for the department at large? Whoa, that's actually a, a really big question. And, and again, and I, I kind of think the answer resides in the question because if you're trying to get ahead of the schedule, you're not doing things you should, bad things can happen. For example, the last crash during development in which uh, four Marines were killed in New River was found afterward to have been caused partly because some computer testing of the flight control system hadn't been done. There was this pressure to get the plane into service. I mean, I think it's a very complicated question, but it's also a simple problem. You can't run before you can walk, is what it amounts to. But oftentimes, we ask our defense contractors to run before they can walk because we're in a hurry to prove that the critics are wrong. I mean, one of the interesting things to me that's related to this is that I think that uh, there's a terribly wrong philosophical and political approach 
to testing, particularly of aircraft within the defense establishment. If you go out and fail a test, that's regarded as a sign that your program is bad. And it shouldn't be. A test, you should go out and test to find out what you need to change. But what happens is an aircraft fails a test of some sort or an operational test. Critics seize on this. Critics in Congress have the GAO do a report about it, say, or they call in the media and point out what a disaster this program is because it failed a test. And it's really the wrong attitude. It's really a naive, uh, simplistic attitude and intellectually corrupt. The purpose of testing should be to find out what needs fixing and then fix it. Uh, not to say you can't fail a test. And it puts pressure on the testers and it puts pressure on the contractors because, you know, somebody has to decide what's actually going to be on the test, right? And a contractor will try to write a proposal or a program with requirements that they know they can pass rather than trying to come up with something that advances the operational ability of uh, the particular force that they're talking about. Testers, I mean, I don't, I don't know a lot of people in operational test. I think that they're generally very, you know, pretty sort of by-the-book strict kinds of people. But the program officers, program managers within the defense acquisition establishment don't want their program to fail a test. And that's another point. I mean, you know, if, if they do, then oftentimes there are bad effects on the careers of the people who are running the program. And I think this is just exactly the opposite, the way we ought to look at testing of equipment. We, we ought to uh, create tests that are going to tell us whether the equipment will really perform the way we need it to. And we ought to make sure that tests are structured so that they're testing for that and not set up so that the equipment can pass the test. Right. I think that's a really important point there. There's lots of different programs. It wasn't just the V-22 that were kind of going through this process where the incentives were such that they kind of wanted to rig to some degree the test or at least minimize the requirements that it would look at so that they can make it through the test program. And so that's when the 80s there was a lot of discussion about this, and you see later in the Pentagon Wars movie when that came out in 1998, how some of that kind of worked with the Bradley. But that's when the director of operational tests and evaluation was kind of formed so that they could, you know, have this independent agency that's really looking at the operational evaluation to ensure that it's being done correctly. And I think you're very right there that to some degree, it is intellectually corrupt to kind of want to just go straight through test and evaluation smoothly because test and evaluation is an experimental method, right? It's error correction, right? And as Karl Popper finds, like that's the most important process to learning. Learning, even if you fail the test, you find out what didn't work and you learn something. And that's the whole point of research and development, to learn things as opposed to have operationally effective equipment ready for the field right then and there. So back in 1983, when the V-22 was becoming a program, and you see that, you know, sometimes the contractors want to buy into production on a program so that they can get the big contracts in production as a statement. But also there's incentives on the government side to say, hey, 
this program isn't going to cost that much and it's going to do great things so that we can fit it into the budget cycle. And I think a lot of that event versus schedule driven problem actually kind of comes from that disconnect from the acquisition process, which is based on events, right? Prototyping, full-scale development, and production. But then that process, the approvals of the milestones to go into the next phase do not authorize the budget. So they had to be anticipated by the budget for the funding to be there. And if you're going to alter the plan, say, full-scale development won't end for another two or three years, but the budget plan, which was already set, right, on an annual cycle rather than an event-driven cycle, well, you're going to have to make changes to the budget. And so that's a different process. And so in order to kind of keep the budget on schedule, you kind of have these other incentives to keep the milestones on schedule. And that's in addition to all these other incentives that you had talked about. So in 1983, when the V-22 program was initiated, it wasn't just, well, maybe the cost might have been underestimated or the schedule was very ambitious. Like you said earlier, they added a lot of requirements on top of it. And that, of course, leads to design compromises. So one of the requirements was they wanted the aircraft to be more survivable than pretty much any of the historical helicopters had been. And this is a very new type of aircraft. And so, of course, that led to more weight and, again, design compromises. But in the end, Marine Corps General George Troutman said, Our concept of operations is to ensure the Ospreys are never shot at. Do you care to comment on this arc where we see military requirements are driving a technical solution, which turns out not to be required in the first place? Well, you know, I think it goes to the, um, the saying that the generals are always uh, preparing for the last war. Um, and, and in the case of the V-22, probably the requirements writers were I mean, they were they were writing requirements based on their experiences and their understanding of, of past conflicts. And a lot of the critics of the V-22, I think, were people who viewed it through the prism of helicopter operations in Vietnam. You know, where Hueys would come zooming into a, a landing zone, a hot landing zone, taking fire, flare to a landing stay on the ground as uh, limited time as possible, pick up casualties, drop off troops, pick up troops, whatever, and then get out of there as fast as they could. And about 50%, I think, of all the helicopters that were used in Vietnam were lost. We, we can go back and double check that figure, but that sticks in my mind from somewhere. And so I think that Probably the requirements writers and, and probably, you know, ideally, yeah, you would have a, an armored car you could fly in there that would be impervious to enemy fire. But combat being what it is and, and aircraft being what they are, where weight is the single most important consideration in design, nothing is ever going to be perfect. But I think what General Troutman was talking about is that in the days when the V-22 got started, which, remember, was just about a, a decade after the U.S. withdrawal from Vietnam and seven years after that war ended, the notions of how combat would be conducted and the equipment that was used to conduct it were very different. And by the time the V-22 got into service in 2007, I mean, we had... Uh, Predator, Global Hawk, Scanning, all sorts of drones 
with sensors flying over the battlefield, providing commanders with information and, and detecting enemy. We had heavily armored attack helicopters that can come into a hot zone and make it less hot. And we have attack uh, aircraft. There are all sorts of, especially sensors and weapons, that can be brought to bear so that you don't land in a, a free fire zone, basically, the way helicopters often, I don't, free fire zone is not the right term, so you don't land into a, into a, a really hot zone often the way Hueys did in Vietnam. And that's what General Troutman was talking about. We would make sure the V-22 wouldn't get shot at by making sure that the V-22 is not flying into a truly hot zone, by having escorts, by using sensors to see who's there first, by using attack aircraft or other means to neutralize those risks. Now, the V-22 has flown into hot zones. I mean, I don't have any figures on it, but a number of V-22s have taken fire, and uh, they have proven to be quite survivable. In the most dramatic example, a few years ago in uh, Sudan, the Air Force V-22s tried to land to pick up some American evacuees from a civil war and uh, had been told that it would be safe to come in in daylight and that, that the local authorities had told the rebels to stand down and nobody was going to shoot at them. But when they came in, the rebels started shooting. And a couple of them got shot up pretty bad. And they flew, I don't know how many miles it is, from there to uh, uh, Uganda to land. And one of them had been hit badly enough. Its fuel tanks had been hit badly enough that it had to refuel, basically made that flight almost tied to a tanker the whole way. Some special operations troops who were in the back of one of the, v the V-22s got shot up very badly, but they survived. Those aircraft survived. And actually within a month, I think, one of them that had been shot up pretty bad was back in service. So it's proven to be a pretty resilient aircraft. It's a combat aircraft. It's supposed to take troops into combat, but one of the other interesting things, by the way, about the V-22 that I've been told by pilots who have flown it into places where they might get shot at is that, and, and I've seen this phenomenon myself in person, if a V-22 is flying toward you in airplane mode, you can't hear it. It's not like a helicopter that you can hear coming for, you know, 10, 15 minutes before it arrives on the scene. Helicopters are, uh, ex with, maybe with the exception of those that were used in the raid uh, that killed Osama bin Laden, are generally pretty loud. The V-22 is extremely quiet when it's flying in airplane mode and you're standing in front of it, right? So they'll approach a zone that way and then at the last minute they go into helicopter mode and land. And they're pretty good at spiraling down that way. So the V-22 hasn't proven to be the sitting duck in combat that a lot of critics expected it would be and will still say it is. To go back to your question, I think General Troutman was talking about the fact that we don't fight wars today the way we did 30 years ago. Yeah, I thought that was pretty interesting that, well, some people 
called the V-22 kind of just like a truck. It wasn't really kind of going into combat. But really, you know, you, you were showing that there were some examples of getting into hot zones. And since the initial operational capability in 2007 in Iraq, the V-22 was able to accomplish 99% of its missions, which is a pretty good rate. And again, like you said, you know, it was doing much better than a lot of the uh, the naysayers might have. Well, when I went over there with them in 2007 with the first squadron that deployed, and I, I don't want to overstate it, I wasn't there a long time, but I was at Al-Assad with VMM-263. That was the first squadron that deployed with the V-22. General Magnus, who was the assistant commandant of the Marine Corps at the time, said they were in the crawl, walk, run stage, and they were in the crawl stage at that time. That is, in getting the rest of the Marine Corps to realize that, oh, the V-22 is here, you can use it, it can do this, it can do that, let us be part of your operations. It was uh, interesting to be there at that time because, first of all, there was not a lot of combat in the area that the Marine Corps had, which was Anbar province to the northwest, basically, of uh, Baghdad. And we were at this base called Al-Assad. It's actually the base that President Trump visited over Christmas for four hours. It's one of the safest places in Iraq. The squadron flew transport missions out to forward operating bases, and they tried to get themselves included in missions that infantry units were doing, usually did with helicopters, to go look for terrorists. And there was not a lot of combat because the Sunni Muslims in that province had basically started working with the U.S. against al-Qaeda in Iraq. And there had been a surge of 30,000 troops in Iraq earlier in the year. So it was a pretty quiet time there. So there weren't that many missions that the V-22 could try to get included in. And what was interesting was that I saw that commanders of individual missions would say, okay, but how are you going to fit in, you know? We usually do this on this time schedule because we use this helicopter. We have to stop here to refuel, and this is how we do it. And the V-22 wasn't, you know, it was like a strange animal walked on into the barnyard, <laughs> and they weren't, they weren't sure what it was or what they could do with it. Well, that was 11 years ago, and over those years, the Marines have done a wonderful job of meshing the V-22 into their operations, and in some cases now, I think the V-22 becomes the centerpiece. I mean, the Marines operate Marine um, expeditionary units of three ships, usually, that go around the world and are ready if needed. And um, one of their needs is to keep supplied, and, and one of their needs is to cover large geographic areas. And the, having the V-22 has enabled the Marines not only to let those three-ship units operate almost independently, the ships, and yet still remain a unit, but also it's allowed the Marine Corps to do without the number of operational amphibious assault ships that some of its leaders wish they had because of its range. So that's a really long, complicated answer to your question, but I think that early on the Marines had to figure out how to use the V-22. Now they have figured it out. It's done great things for them. It's done really good things for the Air Force Special Operations Command, and the Navy will soon start using the V-22 for uh, 
carrier onboard delivery of supplies. So it may be an overstatement to call it an ugly duckling that became a swan, but it certainly was an ugly duckling, and if not a swan, it's turned into a very useful bird. Yeah, I think that's one of the interesting points of technology development that you're bringing up there that, well, you don't really know exactly how it's going to be used, how it's going to mesh into military doctrine until kind of you've had experience with it and you've really kind of used it in different circumstances. And that's something that we kind of see with the technology platforms these days, you know, like Twitter, Facebook, a lot of the behavior that arrives and a lot of the value that comes out of the platform is actually created by the user and was not really in the mind of the technologist when he was creating it. Right. But also the sort of obverse side of the coin is that uh, there's often within, especially within the military, I think, resistance to new technology or difficulty incorporating new technology because it's not just having the airplane. You've got to have the logistics system. You have to have the training. For example, there have been contractors over the years who would develop, uh, Boeing once developed a surveillance aircraft that would use a hydrogen engine. Well, nobody in the military is going to try to use hydrogen as a fuel because where do you put it? How do you, I mean, it, it just creates all sorts of difficulties. And right now, one of the big things that's happening in the aircraft world is a push for the development of electric propulsion. Theoretically, that could be very useful for the military, but, you know, it's like a lot of people probably aren't buying electric cars because they don't know, well, where would I charge the battery and what do I have to do at home to change what I do now? You know, acceptance and incorporation of new technology is always difficult, I think. Un- unless you're a 14-year-old kid with a <laughs> So the book was really kind of great. It wasn't you're just giving us exactly kind of like a play-by-play of what was going on with the V-22. You really kind of dived into a lot of the actors that were involved in the personal stories that went on. And I thought that was really useful and, and just enlightening. So can you talk a little bit about your research approach? I looked at the back of your book and you had a list of interviews and it was like five pages long and over 150 people. And you were really talking to, you know, all of the big uh, players in this. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, that approach comes from my background as a newspaper reporter and and I had done some investigative reporting. And there are basically two ways to go about a project like this or, or even a newspaper story. You can decide what the story is, and then you can go try to find facts that support your story, the story you want to tell. Or you can gather the facts first and then figure out what the story is, and that's my method. So to figure out what the story was, I had to just start finding out, well, so who was involved in developing the V-22? And and I had to learn a lot about this whole question of the, the reason I called it the dream machine because it was the attempt to satisfy a decades-old search for the dream machine that, that led to the converter plane that led to the tilt rotor. You know, I, I like to go out and talk to the people who actually did things and made the decisions and then tell their story as a way of telling the story, the larger story. And so that was, it was wonderful when I discovered uh, Dick Spivey 
early on because I hadn't known him or I, I think I actually had maybe interviewed him once when I was a newspaper reporter but I had no idea of the role that he had played in the creation and promotion of the V-22 over the years. And so he was a rich source of information. But I also went to go to the critics and say, why do you think it's a bad aircraft? You know, what's the evidence? And listen to what they have to say and put it in the book and and let them have their day in court too. Because I think that's the only way that the reader can, can reach a a reasonable conclusion about what the truth is about the V-22. And like I said, you know, for many people, it's just been a sort of knee-jerk reaction. True believers and people who are convinced that this is the worst thing that ever the Defense Department ever spent their money on. And um, what's disappointing about (laughs) a lot of people is their unwillingness to look at facts. But... um, Anyway, that's the way I went about trying to do the book. Yeah, I think it really showed through. You had just tons of interesting tidbits and information and stories. It just wouldn't have been publicly available through just research online or at the library or whatever it was. So, you know, I highly recommend that the listeners, you know, grab this book, The Dream Machine, because it really does do a great job of teaching us, okay, what does the acquisition process look like? Who are the major players in industry, the Pentagon, Congress, and how did that all interact? It was a really great story there on the V-22. And you also did a very good job, similar to that, with the Predator book. And these two programs, the Predator UAV drone, um, unmanned aerial vehicle, and the V-22 tilt rotor, they kind of had two different approaches, or at least... The, the two programs had very different evolutions. Totally. So you saw that, well, the technology seemed about right for each one in their own time, right? The early 90s with the, the Predator, the 80s with the, the V-22, it looked like the technology was coming around. But then the V-22 took more than two decades to kind of get into operations, whereas the Predator kind of was able to rapidly get the capabilities out there to the military Whereas you saw in the V-22, there's lots of discussion. Hey, tilt rotors are going to take a third or two-thirds of the short-haul market. There's going to be this big demand in the private market. That never really panned out. And for the Predator, for drones, I mean, we see just the commercial applications are huge. There's lots of hype about the use of unmanned aerial vehicles. So the market actually did take to the Predator. So... Can you talk a little bit about the difference between the Predator and the V-22 program? What was the single biggest factor, you think, in the difference of their outcomes? Or not necessarily the outcomes, but the process by which they got through development? Well, of course, one important difference in their development is that the Predator was the first advanced concept technology demonstration. And it was basically a case of the Defense Department, the Secretary of Defense at the time, David Deutsch, and his deputy, Larry Lynn, deciding that they needed, not only did they need to speed up acquisition in some way, and they wanted to experiment with this idea of sort of buying something, not exactly off the shelf, because they did develop the Predator to meet just a handful of requirements that Deutsch set but to develop something quickly and let let it go and be used by operators who could figure out whether they wanted more. So it's an entirely different 
process. There, I mean, there was a competition for the contract, and General Atomics beat out TRW for that contract. But then they had six months to produce the aircraft. Now, the single most important difference between these two programs is the fact that the Predator is not manned. And so the aircraft is orders of magnitude more simple than the V-22. Its mission, at the time it was unarmed when it was initially developed, and so its mission was quite simple. And most importantly, when a Predator crashed, and many did, more than a couple of hundred, nobody has to go visit a relative with an American flag and say, you know, we're sorry that your, your son or your daughter lost their life in this uh, aircraft. So emotionally, I think the stakes were a lot lower. But the main thing that caused the Predator to become, a, in retrospect, overnight success by defense acquisition terms, definitely an overnight success, was something that I, I think is very evident when you look at the history of the system. I mean, I, I said in that book, I said, uh, if uh, necessity is the mother of invention, war is the mother of necessity. And uh, the predator came about because basically in Bosnia, the United States was unable to determine through normal intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance systems, satellite imagery and so forth, where the Serbs were who were bombarding Sarajevo, and President Clinton was really angry about this. And so initially the CIA went to General Atomics and bought a couple of unmanned aerial vehicles that they had called Nat 750s and used those in Bosnia. And then Deutsch wanted the Defense Department to develop that, a capability like that, actually with more capability because they wanted it to be satellite, uh, they wanted it to have satellite control. And that's how the Predator came about. So it was in response to a very specific and somewhat urgent need. And that happened several times in the Predator's, um, or a couple of times, uh, key moments in the Predator's history. You know, later on, the, the question was whether the CIA could could pinpoint where Osama bin Laden was in Afghanistan before 9-11. So the CIA, actually an Air Force team working for the CIA, flew a predator over Afghanistan from a ground control station in Germany and were able to spot bin Laden. And then the question became, okay, what are we going to do about it? And President Clinton was had fired cruise missiles into Afghanistan once after the bombing of our embassies in uh, Kenya and Tanzania in 1998 with really bad political effects for him and no great uh, operational effect. So they weren't going to do that anymore. At the same time, the Air Force, because of their experience with the Predator in uh, the Balkan Wars, had decided to arm the Predator. And so when the CIA decided, oh, we need a way to kill Osama bin Laden, and the Air Force was already working on arming the Predator, that program got ginned up. So there again, necessity is the mother of invention, war is the mother of necessity. In effect, what became the war with al-Qaeda later was the necessity that pushed the arming of the Predator. So 
very, very different development history. And I did, as you said, I did that book in a very similar fashion to this one. And I was very fortunate in doing that Predator book in that I was able to meet and interview at great length members of the Air Force team who flew the Predator over Afghanistan from that ground control station in Germany. And then later, through some technological wizardry by a man whose name I didn't use in the book, but who I called Werner, he figured out how you could control the Predator actually from the CIA campus. And they put two ground control stations there ultimately. And and I tell the story of how that developed and how they were flying Predators over Afghanistan when the war there began on October 7th, 2001, and was able to talk to the people actually who fired the first missiles. So that was a very different book. It wasn't. It was not so much about the defense acquisition system, although there were there there are tidbits about it in there. But that's because the um, defense acquisition system itself actually wasn't so much part of the history of the Predator because it was done under this advanced concept technology demonstration initially. And then in 98, it became an Air Force program. And the Air Force gave it to a special unit that they have called Big Safari, which developed it and developed it into uh, uh, first uh, put a laser designator on it so it could designate targets for manned aircraft and then armed it with Hellfire missiles. So it was a very different story. But again, I find that the way to learn the story I mean, when I started that book, the sort of public assumption was that the CIA somehow invented the Predator and armed it. And as you can read in my book, that's not what happened exactly. It's more complicated than that. But anyway, you get the story by going and talking to the people who did the story. Rick Whittle, thank you for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Great to be with you. Thanks. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.